If you've done any amount of reading about St. John Bosco's life, you'll find that the heretical group he clashed with the most were the Waldensians. But who were they? What were their beliefs? How did St. John Bosco fight against them? These are all the questions I hope to answer in this episode. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Subscribe for new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Don Bosco fought against the sect of the Waldensians who had departed from the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church by rejecting most of the seven sacraments. The confession of sins was guided by their leaders and didn't require a priest, and they rejected the use of indulgences. Baptism was to be by full immersion in water only and wasn't administered to infants. Eventually, the elements of the Eucharist, bread and wine, were regarded as symbols only, and they denied the doctrine of transubstantiation, virginity of Our Lady, the notion of purgatory, and of prayers offered for the dead. They continued with word and print to spread their errors among the people, giving 80 liras to anyone who apostatized from Catholicism to their sect. Some of the young men of the festive oratories, who had given Don Bosco serious displeasure and in some issues had worked against him, allowed themselves to be pulled to apostasy by accepting that cursed money. Hence, their rancor sought to vent itself against their former companions, understanding well that they would be regarded as apostates. One evening, Carlo Tomatis returned home around nine o'clock. Passing by the Church of Our Lady of Consolation, he descended toward the oratory and noticed two individuals chasing him. Frightened, he hastened his pace, and so did they. He set off at a run and entered the courtyard and closed the door in time, for if he had delayed a moment longer, there's no telling what they would have done to him. He went at once to narrate the fact to Don Bosco, who arranged for some precautions to protect the community. Joseph Brosio said that Don Bosco suffered greatly from these defections and betrayals. One Sunday, he was preaching in Valdoco against the errors of the Protestants, and with moving words, he complained about those young people who allowed themselves to be deceived by these leaders of impiety, and unmasked the deceptive arts with which they used to draw these youths to certain perdition. Suddenly, he interrupted the sermon, as he was wont to do, and took to questioning some of the children so that they might understand the subject well. At this point, he explained some of the dogmas denied by the Protestants, principally the virginity of Our Lady. Don Bosco became so passionate in developing his argument that his face became resplendent, as if it had been the flame of a torch. Meanwhile, he had begun to give himself with great solicitude to the work of converting heretics. It gave Don Bosco great joy when he could bring someone to the true church. He was often visited by those who were deceived by the Waldensians and had denied the faith. With all compassion, he received them and explained the Catholic truths with great clarity. He then showed them how they had been seduced, putting before them the evil they had accepted, and encouraged them to never despair of God's mercy. At the same time, he helped them as much as he could. After instructing them, some were in need of material assistance, and he would provide for them. Others he received into the oratory so that they might be taken away from the occasion of falling back into error and so that he might better catechize them. Some poor Protestant boys he admitted, instructed, and converted, and brought even entire families back into the fold of Jesus Christ. Some Waldensian recruits came to the oratory more to dispute than to seek conversion, and Don Bosco consented to their debates. 
And Fosse witnessed many of these disputes that took place, and the subtlety of the arguments that Don Bosco employed was admirable. It appeared that he had not only made a unique study to refute the errors of Protestantism, but that he had a special light from heaven to do so. He did this in such a way that it conveyed a great charity with them. However, they didn't always reciprocate it in a courteous way, but he always treated them with goodness. This he called the most necessary virtue, particularly in dealing with heretics. If they perceive they have lost the argument, they prepare themselves to reject the truth and fight against it. Lively contentions close the door of their hearts, whereas affability would have opened it. St. Francis de Sales was skilled in the art of debate, but he converted more heretics with his gentleness than through preaching. The force of argument without goodness never converted anyone. And more than one of the aforementioned arrogant ones was persuaded by Don Bosco and put back into St. Peter's boat. The so-called Waldensian pastors were not slow to notice the zeal with which Don Bosco was working to make the misled souls return to the Catholic faith. So some came themselves, hoping to refute him and then boast of their accomplishments publicly. But they never succeeded. Meanwhile, he continued to spread a new edition of the pamphlet entitled Notices to Catholics that promoted great good in Piedmont and especially in Turin. He printed them by the thousands. Now, while Don Bosco was fighting the heresy encamped outside the circle of the walls of Valdoco, the ugly beast was attempting to sow discord in the oratory itself. A certain reformed friar minor from the convent of St. Thomas in Turin, Father Vitale Ferrero, who was the brother of some of the younger boys who attended the oratory, had made a close friendship with Don Bosco. He knew how to conceal the wickedness of his heart so well that Don Bosco believed him to be a trusted person and invited him to lunch several times. So, in 1852, Don Bosco appointed him to give the sermon on the feast day of St. Francis de Sales. The friar ascended the pulpit and began to speak in the Piedmontese dialect that he knew very well. His descriptions were vivid, and he painted an image of an exhausted St. Francis walking up a mountain to save souls and patching his clothes that he had ruined. He then drew parallels with others who go in carriages and send their clothes to the tailor, and by others, he was alluding to the bishops. He then told a parable of the eagle and the fox. The eagle was above in a tree, and the fox was crawling on the ground, full of foul, disagreeable sores that he wanted to conceal. He tried to hide among the hedges, and then go in the midst of the other animals and infect them. But the eagle stood alert, watching all the devious steps of the fox, and then shouted to the other animals, Beware of the fox! And Father Ferrero concluded, My children, do you know who the eagle was? Luther! Do you know who the fox was? The Catholic Church. As he concluded, Don Bosco had listened with immense sorrow up to that point as he hung on every word. Then he advanced toward the pulpit as the friar descended and taking him by a flap of his cassock, said to him in an energetic voice so that all the young men could hear, you're not worthy to wear this habit. After a short time, that wretch left the monastery with permission of his superiors under the pretext of attending to his elderly father. However, upon arriving home dressed as a secular priest, he chased his father out into the street, then threw off his habit and ended up giving himself to Protestantism by making a public profession under the guidance of the Waldensian pastor Amadeus Bert. 
he was sent to London so that he might pervert the Italians living there and died the same year from a stab wound he received from a compatriot. The unhappy man had gone to preach in the oratory in an agreement with the Protestants. Still, he had not been able to shrewdly restrain himself, immediately throwing off the sheepskin. Those young men who heard him still remembered the ungodly parable in full detail some 40 years later. That tale left an awful impression on their souls. Don Bosco narrated the apostasy of that unhappy man with great sorrow, commending him to their prayers. Thank you all so much for watching, and if you'd like to hear about Don Bosco's saintly mother, Mama Margarita, just click on the video I've put on the screen. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you. Don Bosco, can you read my sins? That was a question the oratory boys often asked this great saint, because yes, he had the ability to read people's souls. We'll be going over the amazing testimony of Ascanio Savio today. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Subscribe for new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. There were some illustrious and learned personages who doubted Don Bosco's supernatural abilities. Many people were saying that he could prophesy events, read hearts, and was able to see hidden things. The doubters reasoned that he simply sensed what was going to happen to people with his natural sagacity. Since Don Bosco was of the shrewdest natural intelligence and kept himself well acquainted with the things of the oratory, such as the temperament and customs of the boys and all those who approached him, he could, possibly, on a merely natural level, foretell certain things unforeseen by others, they thought. Now one can grant that Don Bosco possessed such natural discernment, and even add that his retention of people's names, physiognomies, deeds, and words was significant. He took advantage of these qualities for the good of his neighbor, but not for his own personal advantage. But the many extraordinary things that were said by both outsiders and pupils, and the innumerable things seen by the Salesians themselves, compelled them to conclude that there was undoubtedly much that was supernatural in his behavior. For that matter, it's obvious that Don Bosco's natural endowments, all of which he employed heroically for the glory of God, were rewarded with great grace so that his zeal might become more fruitful. Consistent with the good servant of the gospel, his Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Because thou hast been faithful over a few things, I will place thee over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. The Gospel of Matthew. And so, Ascanio Savio left us a clear testimony of his supernatural ability. He wrote, It was a common rumor in the oratory since 1848 that Don Bosco discovered the sins of the youth by reading them on their foreheads. To test him, many young men would say, Don Bosco, can you read my sins? Don Bosco would sometimes speak confidentially in someone's ear, and it became evident to the others that he saw their sins accurately because the boy would never ask again. Don Bosco preached a mission in a certain church in the Vercelli area. In the evening, a young man approached named Giulio and asked Don Bosco with insistence, Can you also see the sins I have committed and tell me? Don Bosco spoke secretly in his ear as he did with others. After hearing the saint's words, 
The latter looked shocked and told the others, I came from a distant city today and have never known of Don Bosco and never confessed in the Vercelli church, yet that man knew my sins. He proclaimed that Don Bosco knew his heart by a supernatural grace. There was a widespread opinion that Don Bosco read the sins on his son's foreheads. This was not true, but it was amusing that a number of boys tried to cover their foreheads in various ways so that he couldn't read them. Needless to say, that didn't work. But before we continue with St. John Bosco's gift of reading souls, I'd just like to say that if you'd like to enroll in our Saturday Mass intentions for the promoters of St. John Bosco, just click on the link I've put in the description below. Or you can wait till the end of the video and click on the logo that's going to come up on the screen. Now we continue with the testimony from Ascanio Savio. He wrote, I was told by my brother, Don Angelo, that once Don Bosco got up in the morning and wrote notes to various young men of the oratory, among them my brother. I asked him, did he see your faults? He told me that he did. In the manner in which he spoke to me, it was evident that they were hidden defects and couldn't be known except by supernatural grace. Thus, Ascanio Savio finishes his testimony. In Don Bosco, there was no vanity, pretense, or human respect, and what he said regarding other people's sins had, as its motive, a sacred duty to do good for souls. The gift of tears was another proof of his great union with God and the tender love he bore our Lord Jesus Christ. He sometimes shed tears during the celebration of Holy Mass, while distributing Holy Communion, or even while simply blessing the people after Mass. Frequently, he was swept away with emotion and wept in such a way as to make those around him weep also. This happened during his good night talks, while giving his recollections at the end of spiritual exercises, mentioning sin, scandal, modesty, citing the poor correspondence of men to the love of Jesus Christ, or the fear that some of his own would be eternally lost. Amid his tears, sometimes his face appeared radiant by the good young men he spoke to. Bishop Caliero wrote, While Don Bosco preached on the love of God, the loss of souls, the passion of Jesus Christ on Good Friday, the Holy Eucharist, a good death, and the hope of heaven, I saw him shed tears many times. My companions also saw him shed tears of love, sorrow, joy, and of holy transport when he spoke of the Blessed Virgin her goodness, and her immaculate purity. This often happened while he preached in public churches. Don Ravilio saw him shed tears in the shrine of Our Lady of Consolation while preaching on the Last Judgment, as he described the separation of the reprobates from the elect in the Final Judgment. Father Francesco Dalmazzo observed him weeping several times, especially when he touched on the point of eternal life. He was so authentic so communicative and so empathetic that he moved obstinate sinners to compunction, who, after the sermon, sought him out to confess their sins. We've already done around 80 episodes on this YouTube channel that tell of Don Bosco's gifts of healing and all of his miracles, but it's nothing compared to what remains to be said about our beloved saint. What is narrated thus far on our channel is but a small example of an inexhaustible subject. Thank you all so much for watching, God bless you, and Our Lady keep you.
About a month ago, we did a series of episodes describing how St. John Bosco basically became an ER doctor to help cholera patients during the epidemic in Turin. But did you know that St. John Bosco actually contracted cholera himself? Today we're going to tell the story of how he offered up his sickness so that the dogma of the Immaculate Conception be officially declared. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Subscribe for new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. On August 1st, 1854, Pope Pius IX granted a holy year and invited the faithful to penance and pray to the Lord under the patronage of Mary Most Holy Immaculate, that he might remove or mitigate the chastisements threatening the world. Among other reasons, the Pope requested that all bishops and faithful implore the goodness of the Father of Mercies, that he might enlighten our souls with the light of his Holy Spirit. In November, Don Bosco printed his booklet with the De Augustini Press, The Jubilee and Devout Practices for the Visitation of the Churches and Catholic Readings. In it, Don Bosco published the papal encyclical, and the preface read, To the Reader. The primary purpose of this booklet is to acquaint the Christian faithful with the true origin of the Jubilee and how it passed from the synagogue to the Catholic Church. I have made it my conscientious duty to consult the oldest and most accredited of writers, stopping short of transcribing anything that presented any doubt about the truth. Some religious practices are added according to what is prescribed by the Roman pontiff in granting the present Jubilee. This will serve to refute the accusation that Protestants and some bad Catholics make against the Catholic Church, as if the Jubilee and Holy Indulgences were an institution of recent times. Read carefully, O Christian. Who knows that it is not the last Jubilee for us? It's lucky for all Christians if they've done right. Divine mercy awaits us. The heavenly treasures are open. May God make all know how to take advantage of them. Father John Bosco. The December pamphlet was timely because of the blasphemies against Our Lady by the sectarians. The booklet entitled, Considerations on the Expected Dogmatic Definition of the Immaculate Conception of the Blessed Virgin and a Novena was written by Father Costa of Rome. It outlined the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception of Mary, the conduct of the Church regarding this doctrine, set forth the end that the Church proposed in the aforementioned dogmatic deliberation, and the duties to be imposed upon every Catholic because of this. These printouts were also signs of the Oratory's gratitude to Mary Most Holy, the promise so confidently made by Don Bosco to the youth having been fulfilled. The outcome was surprising even to a skeptic, at that time, the pupils of the hospice had already formed a family of nearly 100. Every house had to mourn its dead in the neighborhood where cholera raged. Yet, after a four-month-long epidemic, no one at the oratory had succumbed. The disease circumvented them, advanced as far as the door of the oratory, and even penetrated Don Bosco's room. Still, it seemed as if an invisible hand was directing a retreat, sparing their lives. Amazingly, all the boys who had volunteered to the service of the sick were in excellent health. They seemed to have passed those days as if on a vacation. Hence, all who knew the matter marveled, as it was impossible not to discern the merciful hand of God's protection. Though the disease had penetrated into Don Bosco's room, we must add that it did assail him. 
Don Bosco had prayed to the Lord that if the disease should strike any of his boys, he would offer himself as a victim on their behalf. His mother Margaret told Don Bonetti that one evening in that week in which cholera began to wreak havoc, after a day of great strain, Don Bosco went to bed and fell asleep. Soon he awoke feeling weak and cold and cramps in his feet and legs. His head was spinning and he suffered nausea. He felt all the symptoms of cholera. He was afraid of frightening the boys if he asked for help. He began to pray to the Blessed Virgin, resigning his fate to God's will. He gave himself the standard treatment for cholera, after which, holding the blanket and the sheets with both hands, he started to rub one with the other, and wiggling his feet and legs with such force that his whole body was bathed in sweat after 15 minutes. Don Bosco fell asleep in that state, waking up in the morning without any pain. This was the only case of cholera at the oratory. It must have been caused by charity towards his boys and an even more sublime motive, inspiring him to live the faith for the triumph of the church and Our Lady. From his words and writings, we have well-founded reasons to be convinced that Don Bosco had made God a generous offering of his life to obtain the proclamation of the dogma of the Immaculate Conception that year. It's also certain that he spoke with much praise of people who had taken such a vow in 1854. We believe that his suffering was proof that our Lord had accepted his sacrifice, and his recovery was an effect of the goodness of Mary Most Holy. The solemnity of the Immaculate Conception of the Blessed Virgin Mary was fixed on December 8th by the immortal pontiff, Pope Pius IX, in the Vatican Basilica. He was surrounded by 200 cardinals, patriarchs, archbishops, and bishops who had flocked from all over the world to solemnly proclaim the dogma of faith. On the morning of that memorable day, the boys of the hospice and many from the oratory devoutly approached the sacred sacraments of confession and holy communion in honor of Mary Immaculate, who had covered them with her mantle of motherly goodness. In the evening, Don Bosco prepared them for their thanksgiving. He spoke of the mystery of her mercy in a way suitable to them that had been defined on that day as a truth of faith. He then spoke of Mary's goodness and power for the benefit of her devotees, and then went on to say that they were called to thank heaven for protecting them from cholera. Don Bosco compared the scourge of cholera to the passage that referred to the exterminating angel in Egypt. To help them understand the benefit our Lord granted them, he described various sorrowful scenes in places in Liguria, Piedmont, Turin, and some houses in the neighborhood. Yes, my dear children, let's thank God, for we have reason to do so, as you see. He has preserved us in life amidst a thousand dangers of death. So that our thanksgiving may be more pleasing to him, let us unite it with a cordial and sincere promise to consecrate the rest of our days to him alone loving him with all our hearts, practicing our faith, keeping the commandments of God and the church, fleeing mortal sin, which is a disease infinitely worse than cholera and the plague. Having said this, he intoned the Te Deum, and the young people continued singing it with the liveliest gratitude and love. Who can describe how much Don Bosco loved Our Lady? After the Blessed Sacrament, his first devotion was to Blessed Mary. He continually recommended this devotion to everyone, preaching, confessing, and giving family talks with childlike tenderness. He always had blessed medals and images of Our Lady that he distributed, 
especially to the children who crowded around him, advising them to wear it devoutly and pray to Our Lady daily. To the boys of the oratory, he recommended that they recite five decades of the rosary daily. He even advised them to recite it partly while working and partly on their way to work or home. He assured them that the Holy Rosary was an excellent means of obtaining the virtue of purity and a sure defense against the wiles of the devil. He was the apostle of all those practices of piety that he knew were pleasing to the glorious Mother of God. After the Angelus, he had the three Gloria Patri added in many parishes in Piedmont, which at that time were not generally recited because he knew that they would be most pleasing to her. He then always began, continued, and finished all his works by invoking her. If he had to send circular letters, he instructed that they be sent on a date of one of her feasts, and sometimes he postponed sending them so that they would bear that date. Similarly, he endeavored to begin an undertaking or to hold a solemn gathering of his colleagues on a feast day. Every work he did, he attributed to Our Lady. In sermons and lectures, he repeated that whatever the oratory and the congregation did, everything had to be attributed to Mary's goodness. Throughout his life, he never undertook anything important without first entrusting his designs to her protection. The invocation he said the most was, Maria, Mater Grazie, Dulcis Parens Clemencie, Tunos Ab Oste Protege, Et Mortis Ora Sushipe. O Mary, Mother of Grace, Sweet Mother of Mercy, defend us against the enemy, and receive us at the hour of death. And for this devotion, Our Lady freely gave a solution to all his difficulties. Thank you all so much for watching, and if you'd like to hear about how St. John Bosco could read people's souls, just click on the link I've put on the screen. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you. These are some very helpful facts from St. John Bosco's life that show how he took prudent measures to maintain the virtue of purity, and although some of them only apply to priests and religious, I found the majority to be extremely useful for everyone. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Subscribe for new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Don Bosco's ardent love for Our Lady stemmed from his purity of heart and was, in turn, proof of that purity. We are persuaded that the secret of his greatness is that God filled him with extraordinary gifts and used him in marvelous works because he always kept himself pure and chaste. By just seeing him, asserts Don Piano, one could know how much love he bore for that beautiful virtue. His words, his manners, his features, and on the whole, his every action exhaled such a virginal candor as to enrapture and edify any person who approached him, even if he were a deviant. The angelic air that shone from his face had an exceptional attraction to win hearts. Never did a word come from his lips that could be said to be less than proper. In his demeanor, he avoided every gesture, every movement that had even a little of the mundane. Some of his boys wanted to examine his outward conduct in every way, sometimes even spying on him through a crack in the door. He was never caught in an attitude less than dignified. He would never cross his legs. He wouldn't even put his hands in his pockets to warm them, even in the coldest weather. He never allowed any coarse jokes in his presence. An off-color remark made him blush, and he didn't hesitate to warn the person who had uttered it. 
All his writings are a model of his supreme delicacy in this regard, a true and limpid reflection of his soul. Father Rua said, Several of my companions and I sometimes found it difficult to express some facts from the Old Testament, and consulting his sacred history, we found a way of expressing ourselves with such delicacy as to exclude all danger of impropriety. It can also be said of him what is said of our divine Savior, who was accused in so many ways by his enemies, but they dared not to accuse him of impropriety regarding chastity, so that it must be concluded that he preserved this virtue throughout his life heroically. To restore his peace of mind, Don Bosco told him that once he had gone to confession to an inexperienced priest, Don Bosco kept replying to the various questions put to him in regard to one sin or another, that by God's grace he had never fallen into that sin. Have you ever committed this sin? the young priest asked him. No, father, never. God has always assisted me. And what about this other sin? No, not that one either, thanks be to God, Don Bosco had replied. He then told Father Chatellino that the confessor had seemed unconvinced and apparently doubted his sincerity. It was his opinion, he added, that if a person was presumably sufficiently instructed, the confessor would do well to observe the safe, prudent rule of accepting at face value his self-accusation and not to worry himself or the penitent. He was therefore to put his mind at rest, for his fears were without basis. Don Cetalino recounted this fact and added, As I listened to these words of Don Bosco and compared them with others that I had forgotten, I was persuaded that Don Bosco had never fallen into grave fault. Even Don Ascanio Savio, who observed Don Bosco from the beginning and for a good forty years, affirmed how he was convinced that he had never lost his baptismal innocence and that this opinion was shared by other former student priests. In dealing with men, Don Bosco allowed them to kiss his hands, and he told us that this should be allowed because priests are clothed with divine character and authority, and their hands are consecrated. These sentiments were made manifest by his every act. He sometimes allowed that act of reverence from persons of the opposite sex, but never held their hand in his, and often even evaded them. In the early years of the oratory, when he didn't yet have a reception room, he used to wait for audiences after Mass in the entranceways of the house. He was never seen to lead women into his room to give them an audience. Later on, he enlarged the house and received them in his office that had a waiting room where others came to see him. A member of the house announced those who wanted to speak to him, and he always kept the door open so that everyone present could freely see in. Sometimes a vainly dressed lady came to him. He kept his eyes fixed on the ground, as everyone always saw, and as Don Rua, Don Piano, and a hundred others attested. He sat at some distance from female visitors and never faced them or looked directly at their faces and never shook hands with them as they left or entered and dealt with them as quickly as he could. Since many of these people needed consolation, he never used endearing expressions, which could not have cured one evil except by producing another. Composed in serious demeanor, he comforted them in their adversity with a reason he frequently repeated, God's will be done, and also, God abandons no one. Whoever has recourse to him with his soul cleansed from sin 
and with prayers well done, obtains what he needs. Sometimes a woman would ask him for a blessing by making a sign of the cross on her forehead or eyes, hoping to be cured of her ills, but Don Bosco never complied with their wish. One day, one of them took his hand to bring it to her head, and he rebuked her severely in the presence of Don Rua. He never greeted any lady on the street first, even if she was a benefactress. He never visited a lady except when the glory of God or some great necessity demanded it. Several times, noble ladies offered him a ride as they were going the same way, and Don Bosco graciously declined. If he did accept the invitation, it was when he was accompanied by a colleague or by another man. He recommended the same reserve to his pupils and other priests. Father Ravilio recounted, I remember that when I became a parish priest and vicar de Volpiano, Don Bosco gave me the warning never to allow the smallest touch, even for reward or encouragement, to girls, because he said, this can give occasion for slander. And then, when he was already curate at the parish of St. Augustine in Turin, he taught me to be on my guard and reserved, even when not necessary, to preserve the reputation of a chaste parish priest. Don Bosco always zealously defended his reputation. Father Angelo Savio and Bishop Cagliero both told us how Don Bosco once arrived in Castelnuovo, needed to shave his beard, and went to a barber shop. He was soon introduced to a woman who, after politely greeting him, invited him to sit down and assured him that he would soon be served. It should be noted that the woman's father was a barber and, having no male children, had taught his trade to his daughter. She began to wrap the towel about him. So far so good, said Don Bosco, believing that the barber was coming. But when he saw the woman strop the razor and take the jar of soap to lather his beard, Don Bosco stood up picked up his hat, and graciously saluting, said, No woman's going to lead me by the nose. Oh no, so far no woman but my mother has touched my face. And he left. Even when he was sick, he never wanted to be served by persons of the opposite sex, even by nuns, and he never admitted anyone else around the bed outside of his fellow Salesians, who always admired his extreme diligence in avoiding every small detail that might offend modesty. If you'd like to hear more about St. John Bosco's heavenly virtue of purity, just click on the playlist I've put on the screen, and come back Friday where I'm going to do a second episode about this virtue. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you. If you're a person that struggles to persevere in the virtue of purity, then this video is for you, because St. John Bosco is going to give you advice that will help you maintain this perennial virtue. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Subscribe for new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. In his sermons, conversations, and conferences, Don Bosco knew how to instill a love for purity in hearts. He constantly spoke of the priceless value of this virtue. He painted the beauty of a chaste soul. He described the rewards the Lord has prepared for us on earth and in heaven, and how in heaven a chaste soul follows the Lamb wherever he goes. His words produced a remarkable effect on those who heard him so that they fell in love with purity. Don Bosco appeared to be an angel speaking, not a man. Those listening said, 
Only those who are pure and chaste like angels would know how to speak of purity in such a way. He often exclaimed, I wish you all were like St. Aloysius. Let us keep our promises. I hope God's infinite mercy will ensure that one day we may all be found wearing the white stole in sacred eternity. In everyone, he instilled devotion to the Blessed Virgin, telling them to invoke her in danger by exclaiming, Mary, help me. In addition to these spiritual disciplines, he insisted on always being occupied with doing something. One oratory boy said, in recreation, we should always be in motion. While playing, we were never to lay our hands on one another, not even to walk arm in arm or hold hands. He didn't tolerate anyone being rude or hugging one another, even in jest. Strictly but prudently, he discouraged forming special friendships, even if they seemed to present no danger at first. In this, he was relentless. He deplored vulgarity and didn't put up with words that might cause a thought or feeling less than chaste. In his counsels, Don Bosco spoke of purity more than chastity. He mentioned purity in reserved and prudent terms. He avoided pronouncing the names of sins against purity and described temptations with no other word than evil, a fall he considered to be a misfortune. The very word chastity didn't seem satisfactory enough. He substituted the word purity, which he felt was even more comprehensive and less suggestive. In young men, he instilled the greatest horror of sins against purity. He did this not so much by his words, but by the combination of divine grace, persuasion, affection, and fright, which he instilled into their hearts. He frequently encouraged them to fight the devil. He said, short are our sufferings, eternal our joys. He wept to think that so many boys would fall into ruin because of the sin of impurity. He wept in public while speaking about this matter, saying, rather than allowing such sins to be committed in the oratory, it would be better to close the house. Such sins bring God's curse even on entire nations. And hearing him, the young men went to bed with their heads down, emotionally resolved to jealously guard their hearts for God. Don Bongiovanni exclaims, Blessed are those days when a small fault moved us to tears and urged us insistently to approach a confessor. So great was the effect that Don Bosco's words produced in us. Don Revilio, who lived in Valdoco, adds, I swear that an incredible atmosphere of purity reigned in the oratory. It was extraordinary. Don Bosco formed the assistant clerics to be like himself. He warned them against being too familiar with the students. He wouldn't allow them to hold their hands, enter their rooms, or carry them to their bed, except in the case of grave necessity, of course. Every detention or conversation had to be conducted in the presence of all and never in secluded places for any reason. But before we continue with St. John Bosco's advice to his Salesians, I'd just like to say that if you'd like to enroll in our Saturday Mass intentions for the promoters of St. John Bosco, just click on the link I've put in the description below. Or you can wait till the end of the video and click on the logo that's going to appear on the screen. He warned them that in their every gesture, writing, and word, nothing should cast doubt on their virtue, even from afar. He taught them to guard their senses with severity. Whenever he sent them to serve in sacred school services, he warned them to leave their eyes at home. He said that this precaution is a great custodian of purity. And he quoted from the book of Job, I made a pact with my eyes. 
For this reason, he tried to prevent young ladies from consulting him in the oratory. Instead, he scheduled such meetings elsewhere. When he was asked for advice concerning an ecclesiastical vocation, he was very strict. He said sacred ordinations should never be recommended or permitted to those not firm in that angelic virtue. In urging his clerics to take affectionate care of the young, he reminded them of the example of Jesus Christ, but he feared some might not know how to follow his example properly. So he didn't publicly quote in full or without comment those gospel passages describing how the divine savior clasped children to his bosom. Don Bosco explained that they could not do what God did without danger. He always recommended continual vigilance. He advised them to prevent the boys from encountering anything that might arouse some evil curiosity or teach mischief with their eyes or hands. He said, what matters is to safeguard morality, tolerate everything, vivacity, insolence, carelessness, but not offense to God, especially not sins against purity. Be on your guard about this and put all your attention on the young people entrusted to you. In his dealings with the youngsters, Don Bosco offered the priests, clerics, and co-leaders his example as a master and model in word and deed. His purity shone forth so rigorous, delicate, and public that it never gave the slightest doubt. He loved the children, especially the poorest and most abandoned, because they were most in need of his care and in danger of being lost. He always manifested this love in the most tender, great, and robust ways, but always genuinely chaste. Although he tried to manifest his love in many ways, he didn't allow any overly sensitive act. He gave a perfect example of the Savior's presence among young people. The virtue of purity was like a robe that covered him from head to foot. The young men gladly approached him and had unlimited confidence in him, knowing how innocent and pure he was. Don Morialdo declared that Don Bosco's love for the young made them love him back with sincere affection to such a degree that finding another example would be difficult. Canon Balicio gives this testimony. Whenever he was surrounded by the youth and sometimes pulled from one side to the other during games, he showed a simple, nonchalant, and most reserved cleverness. His words, presence, and even a glance or a smile inspired love for the virtue of purity. In our eyes, this virtue was one of the most splendid ornaments of the servant of God, which was why he was so venerable and loved by us. From time to time, if he wanted to suggest something to them, he would always tilt his head somewhat and quietly say a word with dignity so that the others wouldn't hear. Then he would recommend some pious advice that he frequently gave and invited them to join him in a prayer. He allowed them to kiss his hands and use this act to offer warning or encouragement. The students and priests gladly kissed his hand as if kissing a relic out of esteem and deep reverence. Don John Turki states, when we were around him, his very presence made the virtue of purity so attractive that one was not even capable of an impure thought. This same impression was felt by my companions as well. Bishop Caliero also remarked, when Don Bosco heard our confessions, such was his composure and the candor of soul that we felt we were in the presence of a holy and religious man as if in paradise. He inspired ardent love for purity with few words. 
He was never seen caressing any of the boys, as others in his position might have done. As a reward and a sign of his benevolence, he would merely place his hand on a boy's head, over a shoulder, or on their cheek, just barely brushing it with his fingers. Don Ravilio adds, by this attention, there was something incredibly pure, chaste, and paternal. He seemed to infuse us with the spirit of his chastity to such an extent that we felt enchanted and more resolved to practice this beautiful virtue. However, whenever a student went to speak to him alone in his room, Don Bosco treated him with even greater reserve. Though always affectionate in his words, he allowed himself none of those signs of familiarity, however slight. Thus, with his prudent and holy attitude, Don Bosco began and continued until his last breath to instill a love for purity and virginity in young boys. Although these boys came from diverse backgrounds and every condition and country, they held this love in such esteem that the splendor of such a beautiful virtue especially shone from most of them. This virtue could be detected in their words, gazes, and demeanor. Their horror of sin was inexpressible. Firm and true piety was the characteristic of the oratory. Piety that was almost beyond their age and was virtually non-existent among laymen. We saw them a thousand times in church and their faces were always so amiable that they were enchanting. Their gazes shone with a fire of priceless candor that no pen can describe it. Their expressions reflected the face of the Lord as it says in the Gospel of Matthew, Blessed are the pure of heart, for they will see God. Thank you all so much for watching. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you. I know that Don Bosco saw the poor souls in purgatory. That much is clear from his mystical dreams that I've covered on this channel. But having read one particular sermon that he gave to a parish in Castelnuovo, I now think that he saw them far more often than just in dreams. It could merely be an oratorical trick to get people's attention for the sermon, but Don Bosco didn't play tricks. I'll let you be the judge. In any case, I'll be telling you the story of how this sermon inspired young John Caliero to join the oratory. He was destined for greatness, and later went on to become a bishop and assist the native peoples in Uruguay and Argentina. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Subscribe for new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. At the beginning of October, Don Bosco arrived at the village of Becky for the Feast of Our Lady of the Rosary, taking several of his pupils with him. The young John Caliero had been waiting impatiently for him. His companions of Castelnuovo recognized the boy as somewhat of a future leader. A bishop had come to give confirmation in the parish, and the young man admiring the cleric's vestments made himself a mitre and cope out of paper and formed a crozier from a reed. Then the boy sat upon a ladder while his companions carried him on their shoulders amid a crowd of children who applauded as the little bishop blessed them. His lively and good-spirited actions attracted the sympathies of Father Cenzano, who let him come freely to the refectory and gave him small tasks, all the more so after Don Bosco had promised to accept him in the oratory. At this point, John Caliero began to feel an affection and enthusiasm for Don Bosco. He later said, I was constantly hearing others praise Don Bosco. 
My mother, cousins, and friends told me that they always saw something marvelous in Don Bosco's behavior that distinguished him from his peers, and that his bearing, modesty, and gentleness revealed that he was something more than just a virtuous young priest. I knew several of his clerical disciples in Castelnuovo, and they always spoke to me of Don Bosco with reverence and praise of his goodness and virtue, that they considered him more than a model of Christian perfection. He was a model of a holy life. Dr. Allora then told me and others that in Chieti he was considered a saint. Don Cenzano, vicar of Castelnuovo, told me that he always saw something that was extraordinary in Don Bosco. His piety, joy, reserve, obedience, and humility weren't just ordinary. He was extraordinary in everything. And then, alluding to his tenacity for the good works he undertook, Cenzano told me, Don Bosco is always exceedingly generous and determined, like the saints. As soon as Cagliaro heard of Don Bosco's arrival, he hurried to Becky, and seeing his composed, modest demeanor, recognized that Don Bosco was adorned with many virtues. On All Saints' Day in 1851, Don Bosco arrived in Castelnuovo to give the Sermon of the Faithful Departed. Caliero was filled with so much enthusiasm that he managed to arrive a few hours before any of the other altar boys, as he longed to be chosen to accompany the preacher to the pulpit for the sermon. Seeing as he had put on his cassock long before anyone else arrived, he got his wish, and Don Bosco gave an unforgettable sermon that day. The saint said that he had passed by the cemetery on his way and heard mournful voices calling his name. He approached, and amid the crosses he saw souls coming out of their graves. One said to him, Tell my son. The other, Tell my daughter that I am in purgatory, that I have always loved her, and yet she no longer thinks of me. There were husbands, wives, sons, and friends begging for help, that others might be moved to deliver them from those atrocious torments. Don Bosco described those pitiful scenes, tender laments, memories of the past with such vividness, candor, and truth that those listening wept. The alms collected that day were abundant, about 150 liras. To those who marveled at the generous offerings that his sermons produced, he replied, to obtain charity from the people, it's necessary to make them understand that it is in their interest to give alms, so as to receive temporal benefits from the Lord, and how it's harmful to be stingy with the holy souls or with the church. Having protectors in heaven is advantageous. They ward off chastisements, misfortunes, storms, diseases, insects from plants, and droughts. This is the secret of inducing people to give alms. Otherwise, little or nothing is achieved." Having made his sermon, Don Bosco went down to the sacristy and, with a kind and affable air, turned to little John Caliero. It seems that you have something to tell me, to reveal some ardent desire of yours, do you not? Yes, sir, replied the young man, blushing. I want to tell you something that has been bothering me for some time. I want to go with you to Turin to continue my studies and become a priest." "'Well, you will come with me, then,' said Don Bosco. "'Don't worry. The pastor has already told me about you. "'Tell your mother to accompany you tonight to the rectory, "'and we will get to know one another.' 
His mother came, and they agreed to send him to Valdoco. Such was the acceptance of another young man by Don Bosco at Castelnuovo on November 1st, 1851, that leaves a fond memory in the annals of the oratory. John Caliero, whose biological father had died shortly before, now had Don Bosco as his father. Caliero had invited his friend, John Turki, who was 16, to go there as well. He would later graduate from the oratory and become a diocesan priest in Turin. Don Turki wrote of that event many years later, saying, Caliero told me so many excellent things about Don Bosco that I went to Becky to see for myself. I was struck by the sight of a priest who understood his ministry and was so affable, something I wasn't accustomed to. I conceived an indelible idea and impression of him by the loving way in which he spoke to me and other young men. I was thrilled. Having tested me on the subjects I was studying and on the state's election, he told me, I know your father, and I am a good friend of his. Tell him to come to see me tomorrow. My father went and agreed that I would enter the oratory in the middle of October. I went to Valdoco to study, that marvelous place where I heard Don Bosco was doing extraordinary things, and his fame was constantly growing. I saw the evening schools he directed and other teachers, such as Father Chiaves and Mr. Geninati. On the feasts, many boys attended the church services, and after, the military exercises, which we performed with old rifles without barrels. But above all, what struck me on entering the oratory was finding piety, which made me understand what it meant to go to confession. People there received the sacraments with frequency, not only on holy days, but also on weekdays. For the most part, we went to him for confession, although on feast days there were also other priests that would assist. So many young men approached the altar on weekdays that while he was preparing for Holy Mass, he always had someone whisper some regret or scruple to be assured that he could receive communion properly by Don Bosco. I saw in the oratory boys a firm piety that drew others to this goodness. He was most zealous that catechisms be properly given. He used to expound on ecclesiastical history in an easy, clear, and attractive way. Before finishing, he would question some of the students so that they would reason out what they had just been taught. In the evening after the lectures, he would give us such appropriate counsels that I felt a delight that I just couldn't express. Don Bosco educated the youth and led them to goodness by persuasion and gentleness. When he gave orders, he almost begged us, and we would make any sacrifice to please him. I saw the oratory progress go from good to even better in the ten years I lived there until my ordination. Having visited many institutes, I found none that exhibited such piety as that of Don Bosco, whose benevolence I always enjoyed even from afar. Thank you all so much for watching, and if you'd like to hear about how Don Bosco was a model of purity for priests, just click on the video I've put on the screen. There's some excellent advice in there for everyone. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you. Whenever I looked at drawings of St. John Bosco's oratory buildings, or the massive church he built in honor of Our Lady Help of Christians, I always wondered how he funded it. In today's episode, I'm going to explain how we managed to obtain so many donations from generous benefactors 
and managed to do a tremendous amount of apostolate with them as well. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Subscribe for new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Don Bosco had a simple rule about going to the houses of gentlemen. He didn't pay visits or attention to others' business unless the oratory's needs required him to, by reason either of charity or glory to God. However, he often had to call upon benevolent people. Don Bosco preferred the company of poor, abandoned children instead of the distinguished gentlemen who often came to see him. He presented himself at palaces without pretension, only with courtesy and simplicity. He treated everyone with due respect. When some of his companions asked how they should behave around notable people, he replied, with good manners and without pretension. One year, he sent one of his clerics to spend the autumn break in the villa of a noble family in Turin. Don Bosco said to this cleric, in the presence of the mistress of the house, act as you would in your own house. If you need anything, consult the baroness as if she were your mother. At any distinguished meeting, but especially a first encounter, his attitude was an act of humility. When asked about his homeland and condition, he wasn't ashamed to share that he was born poor and that charitable people made it possible for him to study. He recounted with pleasure how he was a simple priest with no title of honor or dignity, no degree as a theologian, no professor's diploma, and not even a teacher's license for the elementary class. He would say, I am called Don Bosco, and I have no other title than the Chief of the Rascals. At the same time, however, he made a point of honoring people with the titles that pertained to them. Like St. Francis de Sales, Don Bosco was generous in respect and esteem. He likewise went to the nobles to take care of urgent business for their own family's benefit. His speeches always discussed serious and edifying matters, and he secured numerous donors for the oratory. His thoughts were continually with his young people. Sometimes he showed it by bursting into exclamations that seemed out of place. Upon entering a large room, for example, he would exclaim, What a beautiful room! Twenty beds could fit in it! But he always said this kind of thing with delicacy and caution. Naturally, to gratify every valid desire of those who affectionately questioned him, he almost always reasoned with them about what he had done and was doing for their benefit. As a result, he couldn't be silent about himself, and sometimes even about facts that shed glory on himself. He always described those things with an admirable good-naturedness, but without making it seem that he was important. Don Berto heard this same opinion from Baroness Gabriella Ricci, who said, It's truly amazing to hear Don Bosco when he speaks of extraordinary things that pertain to himself. He does it as if he were speaking of others. A beautiful scene cheered up noble families with little children. Don Bosco often welcomed them with a great heart when good mothers led them into his presence. He knew how to offer them admonition and praise in ways that encouraged them to improve themselves to please God and their relatives. He often entertained himself by playing with them as if he was their friend. Wherever he met boys, he followed his oratory practices of blessing them, much to the delight of the good mothers, who wouldn't have dreamed of letting him leave without first obtaining his blessing. The Countess of Bricharasio and other mothers told all this to Don Rua. Whenever they heard that Don Bosco was arriving at a house, all the children of the household ran to him. He knew how to encourage them with words and little gifts, 
all of which they remembered as adults with lively affection and gratitude. In these visits, he tried not to inconvenience or embarrass his hosts. Once he was offered a cup of good coffee. He accepted, but there was a jar of Epsom salts instead of sugar on the serving tray. Don Bosco served himself with the salt, not realizing it. One can only imagine the horrid taste, but he drank the entire cup and didn't show the slightest sign of repugnance. He treated the servants with great familiarity and kindness. He called them friends and let them know that he too had once been a servant. This showed genuine humility. Evidence of this can be found in how he welcomed his relatives who came to the oratory to visit him wearing the clothing of poor farmers. Likewise, consider his celebrations when the elderly lady Molia Dorotea visited him in Valdoco. He had been her country's servant, but he honored her cordially as if she had been his mother, and he made her sit near him during lunch. Many important people would invite him to their lunch table. He attended either to thank them for the help they had offered him, to show his gratitude to those so fond of him, or to find comfort in calmly describing the serious needs of the oratory and his other works. But whenever he left the oratory to accept an invitation, he often said to Don Rua or his secretary, if you only knew how much it repulses me to go to lunch outside the oratory. Yet I must do so to obtain donations. Some generous gentlemen make it a condition that I go to lunch with them. They promise me a sum of money and say, come yourself and take our gift. If you need anything, come and have lunch with us. Otherwise, I would never accept such invitations, even though our donor's charity inspires them. I love being here at our frugal and modest table better than being outside the house with so much luxury and so many dishes. I greatly regret it, but it cannot be done otherwise. Sometimes at the beginning of those lunches, Don Bosco would unfold his napkin and find a hundred lira note, or even sometimes a thousand lira note. On other occasions, when the fruit course was offered to him, it included a round sum of money. But despite his continuous need for finances, Don Bosco declined many invitations because he had many pressing occupations, especially his sacred ministry responsibilities. He often promised to go to the castle of Casaletti to lunch with Count Charles Kays on his patron saint's feast day, but Don Bosco had never been able to keep his word. Then one year, Don Bosco said that he would finally come and lunch with him. If Don Bosco comes, I'll eat a whole dog, exclaimed the Count, smiling. Don Bosco heard of the Count's offhand remark, so he bought sweet pastries that a skillful confectioner had shaped to resemble puppies. While dessert was being served, Don Bosco placed the pastries on the table and said, Count, now keep your word. Here's a dog and you must eat him entirely. The Count, who wasn't expecting the sudden silliness, laughed heartily. Marquis Fassati also complained that Don Bosco never came to his palace for lunch. The Marquis wished to spend a few hours with him. Therefore, he and his lady came to invite Don Bosco one day. Don Bosco apologized very handsomely, explaining that the oratory was short-staffed in those days. He said that he had to handle many affairs with careful attention and also had to revise his drafts of the Catholic readings. The Marquis insisted, but Don Bosco replied that he needed to find money to pay for the building works at the Felipe House in 1862. The Marquis then resolved to give him 3,000 liras, but he told Don Bosco, so come and have lunch with me. Whenever you come, I'll let you keep a note of a hundred liras. 
Due to his urgent need, Don Bosco gave in to that noble lord's wish for 15 days that month, and he always received what the Marquis had promised him. The Marquis was happy to have him visit so often, but he didn't wish to disrupt Don Bosco's responsibilities further. So at the end of that month's final lunch, the Marquis said, I see that you're uneasy about interrupting your duties for me. Well, take the balance of the 3,000 liras, then. If you can ever come to lunch without serious inconvenience to yourself, you'll always do me a great favor. And he handed him 1,500 liras and went with Don Bosco to the Valdoco Rondo. As they walked, Don Bosco told the Marquis that he still had several more thousand lira debts to pay by the following January, money that paid for lime, stones, bricks, beams, and construction labor. The Marquis answered, Dear Don Bosco, I promise to keep 10,000 liras ready for you by January so that you may pay off your most urgent debts. Then the Marquis returned home, seeing Joseph Reano waiting for Don Bosco in Valdoco. Walking to the oratory, Don Bosco told the young man what had happened to him that evening, concluding, Blessed be that generous and pious soul. Marquis Domenico Fassati, who was generous, had been encouraged by Don Bosco to be even more generous. He often said, It's a curious thing, but true. The more I give to Don Bosco, the more I receive. Thank you all so much for watching, and if you'd like to enroll in our Saturday Mass intentions for the promoters of St. John Bosco, just click on the link I've put on the screen. You don't have to become a monthly donor to have a Mass prayed for you, but I ask you to please consider making a small sacrifice to help me to continue with this channel so that I can spread devotion to the great St. John Bosco and encourage piety in this impious world. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you. Let's go. Pope Pius IX was persecuted and spied upon by some of Napoleon III's worst Masonic henchmen. To help, Don Bosco sent two of his religious to Rome with a secret message for the Holy Father. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Subscribe for new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Let me present a short historical view of the political and religious climate in which Don Bosco's letter to Pope Pius IX was sent. On September 20th, 1870, Rome was invaded by Victor Emmanuel's army that forced the unification of Italy, thus destroying the Papal States that had existed since 756 AD. Pope Pius IX was made a prisoner of the Vatican and the new revolutionary Italian officials strategically left the Pope to perform his religious functions while trying to persuade him to accept the principles of the New World Order, attempting to appear as moderates. The political climate was heavily charged with the French revolutionary spirit, and Pius IX battled incessantly against Masonic forces over the appointment of bishops, which is not a prerogative of the state, but solely that of the Vicar of Christ. This tension was further exacerbated by the Pope's fiery speeches rejecting attempts to reconcile the Catholic Church with revolutionary forces. The acceptance of the mandate on papal infallibility proclaimed at the First Vatican Council and the Pope's rejection of liberalism had the effect of uniting good Catholics and increasing the Church's isolation from liberal and Protestant Europe. However, Pius IX needed all the help he could get. Seeing this tragedy unfold, 
Don Bosco was inspired to write to Pius IX to offer what assistance he could, and he sent Don Caliero and Don Savio, who arrived in Rome on June 23, 1873. Don Caliero was carrying two letters for the Holy Father. One was to be delivered immediately, with great secrecy. Don Caliero delivered it to Monsignor Pacifici, who personally handed it to Pius IX. On the octave of St. Peter, Don Caliero met with a certain Monsignor who told him he had seen a high-ranking Vatican official being jailed. He added, Pius IX had received a confidential message. An investigation discovered disloyal plots in the Vatican print shop. Several persons were arrested. The Monsignor knew nothing more. Don Caliero, however, understood. In the Vatican, disloyal employees were printing inflammatory leaflets secretly at night. The Masons then spread pamphlets to stir the people to rebel against the papal government with their lies. The Pope had a traitor in his own house, someone that the revolutionaries had paid handsomely. The proof of this is that Empress Eugenie, wife of Napoleon III, had written two letters in confidence to the Holy Father and sent them to the Pope by a most faithful messenger. She published important news about the plots being hatched against the church in the letters. She requested that those papers be destroyed instantly, lest they fall into the hands of her husband. The Pope read the Empress's letters and assured the messenger that no one would ever know their contents. He then locked those letters in his private safe, to which he only had the key. Sometime later, the messenger returned with a third letter, in which the Empress complained that the secret had not been kept because the two previous letters had somehow passed right into the hands of Emperor Napoleon. She asked for advice about what to do. Pius IX protested that those letters were in the safe to which he alone had the key, and he immediately went to the safe and opened it. To his shock, the letters were gone. Pius IX paled and was ill for several days. Then, narrating this painful fact to Don Bosco in 1869, Pius IX said, You see, there are traitors even among those around me. Bishop Manacorda confirmed that Pius IX felt unsafe even in his own rooms. One evening after 10 o'clock, the pontiff received the bishop in his bedchamber to make a critical report. But the pope looked around suspiciously before the bishop could open his mouth. He said, Speak softly for even here we are in danger of not being alone. The walls have ears. However, a most sublime and moving spectacle happened on July 1st. All the patriarchs, archbishops, and bishops present in Rome, no fewer than 486 prelates, had gathered in the great hall above the portico of St. Peter's to present an admirable address to the Pope. Signed by all, the address demonstrated their loyalty and obedience to the Vicar of Jesus Christ. Some of those venerable hosts had suffered torture in pagan countries, and their limbs bore the proof of their heroism. At the first appearance of Pius IX, all simultaneously fell to their knees, shouting, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, from the Gospel of Matthew. Behold the true church! at Unum Sanctum Catholicum at Apostolicum Ecclesium. There was the true church, one holy Catholic and apostolic. The Pope and the bishops were moved to tears. 
Bishop Castaldi, who had returned from Rome, described the scene with enthusiasm and ended by saying, the bishops huddled around Pius IX like the youth of the oratory around Don Bosco. Don Caliero and Don Salvio were waiting to be introduced to the Pope. They had the consolation of prostrating themselves at the feet of Pius IX, who welcomed the sons of Don Bosco with paternal affection. He asked for news of that good man, spoke of the oratory, and received the paper Don Caliero had brought with pleasure. Pius IX opened it and read the following letter. Most Blessed Father, Several circumstances prevent me from going to Rome to pay my respects to the Vicar of Jesus Christ on the occasion of the centenary of St. Peter, of whom your holiness is his successor. However, as a Christian, as a priest, and as a rector of charitable houses, I make it my gravest and most heartfelt duty to send two of my priests, Angelo Savio and Giovanni Cagliero, to prostrate themselves at the feet of your holiness along with the faithful gathered in Rome from so many parts of the world. These two represent the priests, clerics, and 1,200 boys of our houses in Turin, Lanzo, and Mirabello, along with many good lay Catholics whose occupations or conditions do not permit them to go to Rome personally. All these profess themselves to be the most affectionate sons of your holiness, most attached to the Catholic religion and ready to give their goods and their lives to live and die in that religion, of which your holiness is supreme head on earth. I believe it will console your holiness that the newly consecrated bishops were received in their dioceses with the most excellent signs of esteem and reverence. Even happier times never saw such a general concourse of civil and ecclesiastical authorities, nor of all classes and conditions of citizens, transported with holy enthusiasm toward a new pastor, who walked among them as in true triumph. These facts show how Catholic our countries are, provided they are free to practice their religion. The enemy of souls now places obstacles to prevent further appointments of bishops and vacant sees. We pray that God will enlighten the blind and give health and strength to your holiness so that you may lead this holy work to its longed-for completion. If I may be allowed, on this singular and extraordinary solemnity, to ask your holiness an ardently desired favor, with the greatest respect, I renew my request that your holiness approves the constitutions of the Congregation of St. Francis de Sales, with whatever corrections, variations, and additions your holiness deems necessary for the greater glory of God and the welfare of souls. In the meantime, we will continue in all our houses to pray morning and evening for your holiness, that God will grant you health and grace to sustain the grave storms, perhaps not far off, that God allows the enemies of goodness to raise against religion. This is the last trial, but the triumph will be yours afterward. It's time for us all to unite in one heart and soul to pray to Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament and to Mary Most Holy Immaculate, the two anchors of health in the impending hurricane. On behalf of all those mentioned above, I prostrate myself at the feet of your holiness to ask for the holy and apostolic blessing. With the deepest gratitude and the greatest veneration, I always consider it the most beautiful moment of my life when I can profess myself. Your most obedient and affectionate son, 
Father John Bosco. Don Caliero made many visits on behalf of Don Bosco. He witnessed how the Roman nobility and many prelates venerated Don Bosco. He was always at the disposition of the Holy Father, Vicar of Christ, and was given the foresight to warn Pope Pius IX of the many problems assailing the bark of Peter. Let us pray fervently that St. John Bosco intervenes now in the crisis unfolding before our very eyes that is tearing the church apart from within. Thank you all so much for watching, and if you'd like to hear St. John Bosco's teachings on purity, just click on the playlist I put on the screen. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you. Most people know that St. John Bosco had supernatural visions from above, but what about his oratory boys? What if I were to tell you that a young man named Zuka received apparitions from Our Lady? That's the story that I'm going to tell you today. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Subscribe for new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Don Bosco's zeal in promoting the glory of God no doubt pleased the Queen of Angels very much. As we have already heard in other episodes, she gave him continual help in developing his institution and in directing and sanctifying his dear pupils. He obtained countless graces from our Lord that he lavished on the faithful who requested his prayers and blessings, as we will hear in other episodes. For now, we'll focus on marvelous events described by authoritative witnesses. On the eve of the Nativity of Most Holy Mary, September 7, 1857, a young student named Zuka was sick in bed with a fever. Suddenly, the Blessed Virgin appeared at his side, looking unspeakably loving and majestic. She said to him, I have come because I love this house very much. I'll tell you what I desire from the boys, and you will report my message privately to each of your companions. After she gave the sick young man some information, she slowly proceeded through the room. At each empty bed, she gave Zuka a message to the boy it belonged to. When she reached the bed of young Gastaldi, she said to Zuka, warn this boy in my name that he should go immediately to confession, for he has not approached the sacraments since Easter. Returning to Zuka's bed, she added, you will give this message to Don Bosco and your teacher. Then she disappeared. Only this privileged young man could bear witness to the first part of this account, but what happened next was witnessed by the entire community of about 200 people. From the moment of her visit, Zuka was perfectly healed, but it was already late evening, so he didn't rise from his bed. Instead, he sent for his dormitory comrades, who were enjoying recreation, to tell them he had an important message to communicate. His friends went up immediately and surrounded his bed, standing somewhat apart from one another. He asked each one to approach him and confided what the Blessed Virgin had said concerning them in secret. He possessed a demeanor of gravity and conveyed an air of authority in contrast to his youthful face. The young men silently stood in his presence, stunned and reverent. As he finished, he exclaimed, I need to talk to Gastaldi but Gastaldi had not come. A companion ran to call him and led him to Zuka's bed. Zuka passed along the message that Our Lady had entrusted to him regarding Gastaldi's need to go to confession. At that hour, Don Bosco heard confessions in the sacristy. 
Hearing what Our Lady had said, Gastaldi answered, All right, I'll go at once. And he left the dormitory to go to confession. But as he went downstairs, he changed his mind, thinking, These are all just stories. But not wishing to ignore his friend's advice, he entered the sacristy and passed into the chapel of Our Lady. He spent some time on his knees to devise the lie he wanted to tell Zuka, after which he returned to the dormitory. None of the other young men had seen where Gastaldi went. He was about to say, now I am joyful, when Zuka's face took on an expression like that of a prophet. Zuka sat up on the bed and said to Gastaldi in the presence of all, you're an imposter. Can you imagine that I didn't see you? You didn't go to confession. He then described the route Gastaldi had followed and how he had stopped at the altar of Our Lady. Zuka commanded him to return and see that you do not abuse God's mercy. Go at once. Confused by the evidence set before him, Gastaldi dared no longer to ignore the rebuke. Promising that he would go to confession, he left. Zuka spoke as if he saw exactly what was happening, fixing his gaze on the door. He said to the others present, He's now descending the stairs. He's now under the porches. He enters the sacristy and kneels. He approaches Don Bosco now. Now he's confessing. After a while, Gastaldi returned all cheerful. He had neither the need nor the chance to report what had happened because Zuka told him at once, now you can say you're happy. But see that you continue to be good because Our Lady told me you must change your life. Otherwise, you'll be punished. To everyone's amazement, the next morning Zuka was out of bed. At playtime during the day, he called aside his companions one by one, and with an inspiring demeanor, he gave them Our Lady's message. When he was through, each boy remained pensive. No one dared to laugh. Finally, Zuka approached one of his teachers, a young cleric greatly respected and feared by his pupils, none of whom would ever have dared to make the least critique of him. This cleric was unaware of what had happened with Zuka, but when Zuka unexpectedly came up to him and with an air of authority spoke to him in Our Lady's name, he felt such reverence that he couldn't speak, as though he were in the presence of his superior. Zuka's message was so personal that it left no room for doubt about its heavenly origins. Gastaldi continued to be a good boy, but eventually he had to drop out of his academic courses and take on printing at the oratory. He died of a stroke around 1886. Don Bosco was often favored with these heavenly warnings and admonitions during the community's spiritual exercises, or its novenas in honor of Mary Most Holy. Don Dominic Bongiovanni, Don Rua, and Monsignor Caliero recounted the following story. One evening, Don Bosco publicly said that he had a dream in which all of us were gathered to eat in four distinct groups. The young men in each group were holding different loaves of bread. One group had fresh, tasty rolls. Another had ordinary white bread. Another had dark bran bread. Finally, the last group held stale loaves covered with mold. The first group were the innocent boys. The second were the good boys. The boys of the third group were presently in God's disgrace, but were not accustomed to sin. Finally, the boys in the fourth group with the moldy bread were those fixed in evil who made no effort whatsoever to change their lives. 
Don Bosco explained the causes and effects of the different bread in his dream. Then he said that he remembered very well what bread each of us ate and that if we asked him, he would tell us. Many boys went to him and Don Bosco revealed what he had seen in the dream one by one. He offered observations and advice regarding the state of their consciences. He described the most hidden secrets, the sins withheld from confession, the unrighteous intentions in committing certain acts, the consequences of uncaring conduct, and even the virtues, state of grace, and vocation of each one. In short, he described everything pertaining to individual souls that he discovered, described, or prophesied. The young men were beside themselves with amazement after they had spoken with Don Bosco. In fact, they echoed the words spoken by the Samaritan woman about her meeting with Jesus, as we read in the Gospel of St. John. He told me all that I have ever done. Thank you all so much for watching. And if you'd like to hear another story just like this one, come back on Wednesday. In the meantime, you can click on the playlist that I put on the screen. God bless you and Our Lady keep you. I hope that today's stories about St. John Bosco convinces you of two things. One, that miracles were a commonplace occurrence in St. John Bosco's life, as is the case with many other saints. And two, that Don Bosco wasn't the only saint of the oratory, for there were students who, through the grace of God, were able to read Don Bosco's mind. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Subscribe for new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. The young men sometimes told a trustworthy companion about some warning they had received, but Don Bosco never shared these warnings with anyone except the specific person seen in his visions. This practice assured him that many of his young men habitually lived in the grace of God. For this reason, Don Bosco placed a great deal of trust in the prayers of his boys. When someone went to him to obtain some grace, he sometimes replied, I will have my boys pray. Prayer offered in common and aloud acquires a marvelous power that grows greater by reflecting the devotion and holiness of those who pray. In the oratory, many young boys could be described as twins of St. Aloysius because of the candor of their souls. Indeed, in some of them, charisms marked their spiritual growth. While celebrating Holy Mass one day in 1857, Don Bosco fervently prayed to ask the Lord to enlighten him on how to carry out one of his projects. When he returned to the sacristy, the boy who had served Mass kissed his hand and said in his ear, You're thinking about such and such a thing. Do as you think, for it will succeed well. Don Bosco asked, astonished, How did you know that? Who told you? The child became upset and stammered a few inconclusive words, and Don Bosco didn't insist on an answer. Don Bosco had many such surprises. These showed how he and his students formed one heart, and their prayers worked wonders. To these, Don Bosco attributed the efficacy of his blessings. Joseph Rayano stated in writing that a student who was a native of Ivaria was suffering from a hernia caused by a rupture. Often this ailment caused him severe pain. Unable to stand, he was obliged to stay in bed. One day he found himself so ill that he gave no more signs of life. He seemed dead. 
the doctor was hastily summoned. He rushed in and judged all medicine useless, saying that a prompt operation was necessary. Having arrived at the sick young man's bed, Don Bosco called him by his name, passed his hand lightly over his forehead, and said a few words under his breath. The bystanders didn't hear what he said, but he probably invoked Our Lady and made her some promises. Then he recited a short prayer. The sick young man at that moment opened his eyes, which had remained closed up to that point. He looked at Don Bosco and smiled. All pain had ceased on that very day, and he rose from the bed. Don Ascanio Savio further testified, My brother Angelo, a Salesian, told me that one day he went with Don Bosco to see a man who was seriously ill. Don Bosco blessed him and said, Get up and come and have lunch with the others. The sick man believed it was impossible. He didn't know what to do and was hesitating, but Don Bosco insisted, telling him, put on your clothes and come to lunch with the others. Trusting Don Bosco's word, the young man dressed and went to lunch in the common refectory. My brother added, I was astounded, almost not believing my own eyes. My brother was quite seriously ill. He never hastened to believe extraordinary things when the evidence of his senses didn't compel him to do so, but he was cured. Signora Valauri was a great benefactor of the oratory and a widow of a distinguished doctor of medicine. She begged Don Bosco to implore Our Lady for the grace to experience her purgatory in this life. She felt terror at the thought of the punishments suffered by those who were not quite pure enough to enter the presence of God. This idea upset her completely, and she couldn't overcome it. Don Bosco promised to pray and had the community pray also. Behold, the good lady was overtaken by excruciating pains that lasted two years. When these pains passed, her heart felt a tranquil peace. Every fear of purgatory had dissipated, and she died without illness. Don Rua also bears witness to this account. These and other facts narrated in previous episodes that are even more marvelous remind us of the life of Blessed Oringa, recounted in the Catholic readings manuscript as follows. Who was not overcome by wonder when considering the grand spectacle of the empire God has granted to his saints? Beloved children of the Father in heaven share in his power and reign with him. In this way, they show the earth how dear virtue is to the Lord. All understand the imminent voice of the miracles. With a powerful voice, it says to all, Here is the way that leads to life. Follow, O mortals, the glorious footsteps of the saints. They show us the path of glory, the path of happiness. Who would dare resist such an openly divine call? Alas, there are those who smile with compassionate doubt when they hear these marvelous facts which form the halo with which God crowns his saints. Poor blind listeners, they love the holiness of those heroes and admire their moral conduct, but they doubt the miracles. Are not the saints living miracles in and of themselves because they heroically and constantly practice virtues that exceed poor human strength? Oh, you poor listeners who reject the idea of miracles! Do you not see that miracles are found everywhere? Miracles are found in the sacral man composed of a thousand marvels. They're found in the natural world full of inexplicable phenomena. 
Are there no miracles in religion, the center of all wonders and mysteries? Can you understand how sensible Christians are frightened by the word miracle? Yet don't you profess faith in the three persons in one God, in a God-man born of a virgin? Don't you believe that this God-man was crucified, died, and rose again after three days? Don't you worship this same God in our tabernacles and believe that he descends from heaven miraculously, called to our altars by the priest? Don't you know that water regenerates us through baptism, that the Holy Spirit gives us strength and confirmation, that the Son of God made flesh, true God and true man, is united to us in the most divine sacrament? Don't you believe the truths that make up the doctrine of religion? And then you Christians fear miracles. You want us to be slow and cautious in believing and publicizing them. The saints easily believed in miracles, which is why they worked them. They believed in miracles as if they saw them for themselves. They didn't even try to gather proof of them to see with their own eyes, for our God is the God of miracles. Thank you all so much for watching, and if you'd like to see a series of videos which recount all of St. John Bosco's miracles, just click on the playlist I put on the screen. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you. St. John Bosco received a supernatural vision that he called the Wheel of Fortune while he was trying to gather funds to build a new wing for his creaky old oratory building in Turin. This dream is little known even by those who have studied this great saint, which is fascinating because it showed how the Salesians would have a far-reaching effect worldwide. I'll also tell a couple of stories about how he tried to coax those who worked on the new wing to go to confession. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Subscribe for new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Due to increasing discomforts and demand for space, Don Bosco had decided to construct the addition to the double facility, which now extends from the middle gate to the church of St. Francis de Sales. Don Bosco sent for Signora Giovanale del Ponte, an engineer and general contractor, and asked him if he had enough money to start work. No, the contractor replied. Well, nor do I, said Don Bosco. Then how shall we do this, the contractor asked. Don Bosco replied, we begin work anyway, and the Lord will send us money in time to pay the workers. Don Bosco repeated this standard approach with the builders whenever he began one of his many projects. This new building is necessary. I have no money, but let us begin anyway and start quickly. An estimated 40,000 lire were needed for this particular project. John Villa heard Don Bosco say several times, Don Bosco is poor, but we can do everything in God. Providence will do everything. Let us not sin, and then that God who provides for the birds of the air will also provide for us. How consoling our Father is to whom we pray every morning and evening. How pleasing it is to think that we have a Father in heaven who thinks of us. Nor did he lose hope when he lacked the means to complete his projects whenever he encountered difficulties or even when good people opposed him. He hoped against hope because he was so sure of his divine mission. Even amid misfortunes, he remained tranquil. He had the promise of the Blessed Virgin, and, as if to demonstrate this, Don Rua shared the following account from his life.
Don Bosco was greatly endowed with the gift of prophecy. His predictions of future events that came true were so varied and numerous that the prophetic gift seemed to be habitual in him. He often told us of his dreams relating to his oratory and his society. Among others, I recall this one from around 1856. But before I tell you about this dream, I'd just like to recommend that if you'd like to enroll in our Saturday Mass intentions for the promoters of St. John Bosco, just click on the link I've put in the description below. Or you can wait till the end of the video and click on the logo that's going to appear on the screen. And now I relate our dream for this episode. I found myself dreaming in a square, Don Bosco said, where I saw a wheel that seemed to be the so-called Wheel of Fortune which I understood to represent the oratory. There was a person holding the wheel's handle who called me over and said, watch. And as he spoke, he gave the wheel a spin. I heard a tiny noise that seemed close to me. The personage asked me, did you see that? Did you hear that? Yes, I said. I saw the wheel spin and heard a little noise. Do you know what a rotation of the wheel means? The person asked. No, I don't. The person explained, it's 10 years of your oratory that just passed. The person turned the wheel four more times and asked the same questions. The noise grew louder with each turn, and the second turn seemed loud enough to be heard in Turin and all of Piedmont. The third seemed loud enough to be heard throughout Italy, and the fourth in Europe. The noise in the fifth turn was loud enough to be heard worldwide. The person finally said to me, this will be the future of the oratory. And so Don Bosco's dream ended. Now, as the first phase of Don Bosco's work is considered, it was limited to the city of Turin alone in the first decade. In the second decade, his work extended to the various provinces of Piedmont. In the third, the fame and influence of Don Bosco's work reached various parts of Italy. In the fourth, it extended to different parts of Europe. And finally, in the fifth decade, it was known and sought worldwide. So concluded Don Rua's account. Bolstered by this confidence, Don Bosco was busy writing letters to benefactors as he was an expert in raising funds for Our Lady's work. We quote one here, which Don Bosco sent to Count Pio Galliano di Aliano. Dearest Count, I need to accomplish many works necessary for God's glory and the salvation of souls, and I lack the means to finish them. If, in your charity, you could ever rescue me by sending a little mortar or some bricks, you would indeed be giving a hotel to the pilgrim and the traveler. This section of the facility is intended to shelter the poorest and most abandoned souls. Filled with gratitude, I wish that copious blessings from heaven will descend upon you and your entire family with the utmost reverence. From your grateful servant, Don Giovanni Bosco. He also wrote to the Society of St. Paul and received the following reply. Very reverend sir, from our funds, this directorate has allotted 150 lire for the benefit of your Institute of Abandoned Youth, over which your excellency worthily provides as administrator. I grieve that we cannot afford to send you a greater sum. Having arranged for the amount to be paid, I hasten to notify you so you can quickly collect it from our treasury. In the meantime, I have the honor to declare myself, with distinguished consideration, your devoted servant, President, Chapel of St. Francis. 
In March 1856, work began. The builders demolished the old Penardi house, which had stood as a relic of the oratory's early grandeur. The new building began following the new design. During recreation hours, the boys helped topple walls and carry bricks to save time and expense. The bricklayers included the brothers Carlo and Joshua Buzzetti, early pupils of Don Bosco, who never abandoned his service. Gifted with a good intelligence and as faithful as possible, they became such accomplished builders that they earned a well-deserved reputation among Turin's first contractors. Because it was urgent to have the addition ready for the upcoming fall, the work sped up so much that by the end of July, the new facility had a roof and four stories already built. This progress gave the community hope that it would be inhabitable soon. While these works were going on, there were a couple of incidents that showed how Don Bosco never missed a chance to recommend confession. He left the oratory one day and saw a team of mules pulling a load on the road. One of the mule drivers said to him, don't be afraid, trust me, come over here. They're peaceful animals. Don Bosco answered gracefully, my mother used to say to me, little Giovanni, never trust anyone who doesn't go to confession. The mule drivers looked at him with mischievous smiles. Another time, Don Bosco was walking down the road called Regina Margarita, and without realizing it, he walked too close to a large horse attached to a wagon. The driver told him to beware of the beast because it might kick. Don Bosco replied, I have always said that one should beware of those who do not perform their Easter duty. From these two stories, you can see that he always found a way to work in how to tell someone what they needed to do to save their souls. Thank you all so much for watching. God bless you and Our Lady keep you. You want a bone? There you go. Sit still. Sit still. Ready? Get it. Almost. This is a three-part series on how St. John Bosco fought monastic suppression laws that would allow the confiscation of church property in 1855, so basically legalizing theft of Catholic-owned buildings and land in Italy. Don Bosco sent prophetic letters to the king that warned him of his impending doom if he allowed these terrible laws to go through. It's a fascinating series of events, and I'm very excited to tell you about it. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Subscribe for new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Catholics lived in fearful expectation of the monastic suppression law and its consequences. Don Bosco had already published the charter of the founding of Alta Comba, listing all the curses imposed on those who would dare to confiscate that property. In April, he worked with the Rebolta Publishing House on a booklet by Baron Nilentz, entitled Stealing Church Property and Its Consequences. It featured a quote from St. Ambrose, a private citizen's home is inviolable, and yet you dare lay hands on the house of the Lord. The book covered many centuries of battle between the church and the state and described the dreadful punishments that fell upon those who stole, sold, or bought goods consecrated to God. It showed the consequences for those who despoiled the church, religious orders, and their families. Hence the frightening proverb, the family of those who steal from God shall not attain the fourth generation. Don Bosco's book caused great commotion. 
In the minds of many, the book instilled a powerful, beneficial fear that convinced them not to acquire property seized from the church. The police were intimidated by the book because they feared its effect on the people. Some talked of confiscating and censoring the book, but they decided it was better to pay no attention to it. A deputy named Proferio judged the book to be an insulting provocation aimed at Parliament. He shouted that its author should be punished. However, no one supported his rant, and nothing was done. Meanwhile, on April 23rd, the debate in the Italian Senate began. Opinions were divided, and arguments sometimes degenerated into fights intended to silence the eloquent Catholic orators. The debate had gone on for three days, when Senator Monsignor di Calabiana, Bishop of Casalem, attempted to reveal the hypocrisy of the enemies of the clergy. After consulting with the other bishops, obtaining the Holy See's approval, and warning the king, the bishop offered to pay the government 928,412 lire to withdraw the proposed law on behalf of Rome. This sum would have come out of the current year's diocesan budget and was originally intended to fund the endowments of parish priests on the mainland. Hypocritically so, the government was uncomfortable with this proposal. The fraudulent reason for suppressing the convents was precisely to raise the money to fund these same endowments. Count Cavour, who was working to unify Italy, begged the Senate to suspend its sessions because King Victor had looked favorably on Rome's proposal. The king's wife and mother had strongly pleaded with him to defend the persecuted church. He felt ready to accept the conditions offered by Rome. But the next day, April 27th, the cabinet ministers resigned. General Giacomo Dorando was tasked with assembling a new cabinet to meet under two conditions. One, to include men who would think like the old ministers, and two, to agree to the deal with Rome. These conditions contradicted each other and highlighted the great disturbance stirring in the king's soul as the old ministers were anti-Catholic. Consistent with their dirty tricks, the sectarians were trying to influence the king. The newspapers threatened an uproar if Rome's proposal was accepted and Count Cavour did not return to power. The university students shouted, We support the bills to disband the monasteries, while the rabble threatened violence. Senators who opposed the bill were insulted in the streets, and the mob shattered the windows of Monsignor Enzini's residence where the Bishop of Casali was staying. The authorities were publishing illegal and poorly timed declarations. Daily reports were sent to the king to announce non-existent uprisings in the provinces. The king constantly received letters from high-ranking public officials threatening resignation. He was also distressed by the sudden arrival of some military leaders who declared that they would abandon the Crimean expedition if the king approved new cabinet members they didn't like. There were even military forces deployed under the windows of the king's palace, ready to dispel imaginary rebellions. It was absolute chaos. Maximus Diazelio heard that the king seemed to be against the bill to dissolve the monasteries, and he immediately tried to speak to him. He went to the palace, but wasn't allowed in. Then he dared to write a letter to the king in the following words on April 29, 1855. Your Majesty, believe your faithful servant who has served you, mindful only of your welfare and the good of the country. 
with tears in my eyes and kneeling at your feet, I tell you, do not go further down the path you're on. You still have time. Resume the path you were on before. In a single day, a sly group of friars has succeeded in destroying the work of your reign, agitating the country, shaking the charter, and obscuring your royal name. There isn't a moment to lose. Official statements did not settle the matter the last time. We have been told that the Crown wanted to seek new advice. Let the Crown say that Rome's offer is unacceptable. Let things follow their natural constitutional course as they did before. Piedmont will put up with everything, but we will not be put under the priestly yoke again. No. Thus ended the letter. Meanwhile, General Dorando attempted uselessly to form the new cabinet for eight days. But the whole idea was a farce. When the Senate assembled on May 3rd, General Dorando declared that the former minister, Count Cavour, was now the prime minister. The Count immediately demanded, of course, that the Senate continue discussing the Ratazi law dissolving the monasteries, and thus scheduled the debate for May 5th. While the ill-fated project was being debated in the Senate, on May 17th, the royal house was again consumed with mourning. Earlier that year, on January 8th, the late Queen Maria Adelaide had given birth to a baby boy. The child, who until then had been in excellent health, suddenly became critically ill and died. Within four months, the king had lost his mother, wife, brother, and son. Don Bosco's dream about these deaths had indeed turned out to be truly prophetic. Unfortunately, on May 22nd, with a vote of 53 to 42, the Senate approved the law suppressing religious communities. The law included some modifications. The religious orders that the law named were suppressed, and all their property was to be immediately seized. But the community members would be allowed to die in their convents. However, this clause required them to live in houses designated by the cabinet, supported by an allowance corresponding to the community's original net income. Deploring this evil, Don Bosco requested many institutes in the city to pray. He urged his young men not only to fulfill certain practices of piety, but also to fast on bread and water. They all obeyed. On one of these days, Don Bosco was in the refectory after dinner. He talked about the new law with many of the clerics, Turki, Ravilio, Angelo Savio, Franchesia, Caliero, Rua, and others. Don Bosco said, all that's missing is the signature of Victor Emmanuel, and then many convents will be destroyed. If I could just speak to the king, I would say, Your Majesty, don't approve this law. Otherwise, you will bring many more misfortunes upon you and your family. Some of those present questioned him, Would it be a good idea for some of us to write to the king? Don Bosco replied, Certainly. Savio, do you feel like writing down what I say? I do, replied Angelo Savio. Go ahead. Don Bosco dictated a letter on Angelo Savio's behalf. Tell him this, Your Majesty, yesterday I happened to be talking with Don Bosco and others about the Ratazi bill just passed by the Senate. Don Bosco said, If I could only speak with His Majesty, I'd say, Your Majesty, do not sign this bill. It would be a warrant for more calamities for you and your family. I am apprising you of this as a loyal, devoted, and respectful subject. The cleric wrote down what Don Bosco had dictated and signed his own name.
However, Don Bosco was not yet satisfied. Prompted by an inner impulse that allowed no delay, he wrote a short note to the king in Latin, repeating his previous warning. Dicit Dominus, erunt mala super mala in domo tua. The Lord says, evils upon evils will fall upon your house. Don Bosco no longer implored. He now threatened greater punishments should the king sign the bill. Don Bosco hastened to send the letter to one of the king's chief valets, a man in the royal palace who had the confidence of the king. His name was Okiena. He was from Castelnuovo, a friend and relative of Don Bosco, and his children attended the oratory. The king, unfortunately, had left on the same day for Susa. Signori Okiena, having received the letter, told the messenger, Tell Don Bosco that as soon as the king's back, it will be delivered to him. I'll go and put it in his room myself. The messenger said, But it's most pressing. The king must read it at once. Okiena said, Then report to Don Bosco that the letter will be sent instantly. Calling another valet, he ordered him to saddle the horse and handed him the letter to deliver. The valet reached the king at St. Ambrose. A letter for your majesty, he announced. A letter, the king replied. Give it to someone in the retinue. I'll read it when I'm settled in. Right now, I have other business on my hands. The valet persisted, but it's most pressing and speaks of things of great importance to your majesty. The king asked, and who sends it to me? Don Bosco was the reply. The king paused. Don Bosco writes me things that make me stop and think. Give me the letter. Unfortunately, I don't have time to tell you the rest of the story today, so please come back Wednesday for part two. In the meantime, you might check out this playlist that I've put together about all of Don Bosco's prophecies. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you. This is part two of our story about how St. John Bosco rebuked the King of Italy for allowing monastic suppression laws. And if you haven't seen part one yet, just click on the card I put at the top of the screen. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Subscribe for new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. The king opened St. John Bosco's letter, and after a quick perusal exclaimed, I thought so. He's always like that. Bring the letter back, guard it, and give it to me when I return. He set off. But after taking a few steps, he turned back and called to the messenger, saying, Give that letter to me. Putting it in his bag, he continued his journey. The king was distraught about Don Bosco's letter, all the more so because he was grieving the death of his infant son. Or at least that's what Don Caliero heard from Marquis Fassati, who had seen Don Bosco's letter open on the king's coffee table. Having returned to Turin, the sovereign asked some ministers to read Don Bosco's letter. Look at what Don Bosco says. You tell me now whether I should sign the law. Unfortunately, we don't know how those gentlemen responded, but on May 28, 1855, the Chamber of Deputies approved the bill by 95 votes to 23, and it had five main provisions. One, the suppression of convents who were not involved in preaching, education, or care of the sick. Two, the suppression of positions and colleges in towns with fewer than 20,000 inhabitants. Three, the creation of a church treasury. Four, pensions to be awarded to religious men and women. And five, 
a special tax to be levied on church institutions that were not suppressed. When the bill was presented to the king for his signature, he replied, let me think about this. The ministers, aware of the king's hesitancy and unwillingness to sign the bill, proposed that he seek the advice of trusted court theologians. We don't know whether they suggested this on their own initiative or at his prompting, but the king agreed. At this time, he was so determined to do what was right that if those theologians had given him the correct advice, he would have either never signed the law or would at least have deferred it. Four court theologians, doctors of canon law of the University of Turin and disciples of St. John Neumann gathered in the royal palace. Victor Emmanuel put the matter before them and gave them Don Bosco's letters to read, adding that he wanted them back. Then, in order not to interfere with their freedom of discussion, he withdrew to a nearby room, nervously waiting for their reply. The theologians didn't take long to form an opinion. They told the king, Your Majesty, don't be frightened by Don Bosco's letters. The age of prophecies is past. Ignore his dire predictions and threats. As for the law concerning monasteries and convents, it's an accepted principle that the authority which creates a thing can also do away with it. It is the state that grants the privilege of forming a moral body, and therefore it is also within the power of the state to withdraw such privileges with all its implications. The king asked, So, in good conscience, can I sign this law? Certainly, they replied. So on that very day, May 29, 1855, the king signed it. It affected 35 religious orders, 334 religious houses, and 5,406 people. At the same time, a royal decree closed the Academy of Superga, which had been left without students after Don Audicio was expelled. The large revenues accumulated thanks to another decree were spent on offering temporary and permanent allowances to benefit defrocked priests and certain theologians who served the national government none of which were distinguished in their piety. These laws brought untold anguish to the institutions of the church, especially to poor religious women. Many priests were also prosecuted for fulfilling their duty in administering the sacraments. This truly was not about revenue for the state, but a smashing of Catholic Church in Italy by Masonic, secular, and atheistic forces. The day after the infamous opinion given by the king's theologians, there was a canon from a provincial town who encountered Don Bosco at the Rondo in Valdoco. Don Bosco greeted him. The canon returned the greeting and asked, Are you Don Bosco? Yes. Are you the one who wrote those insolent letters to the king? The canon demanded. Yes, it is I, Don Bosco replied, but they were not insolent. A faithful subject must write to his king to warn him about a bad step he is about to take. The canon raged on, and was it you, then, who dared to impose your opinions and to dictate laws when you should instead obey? I am amazed that you were so brazen. Did the king follow my advice? Don Bosco asked. The sovereign was within his rights, the canon said. It was a privilege of the crown. Did you advise the king of his right? Absolutely, the canon replied. Did you advise him to sign? Don Bosco asked. Without a doubt. Don Bosco said, Pardon me, but before I go on, I would like to ask you a question. Did you celebrate Holy Mass this morning? The canon protested, That has nothing to do with how I must reproach you. 
Please, Don Bosco insisted. Did you celebrate Mass this morning, or did you not? The canon answered, Yes, I did celebrate. Why do you ask? Before celebrating, did you go to confession? Don Bosco asked. What a question! Why? asked the canon. Don Bosco scolded him. How could you dare to approach the sacred table without asking the Lord's forgiveness for the unjust advice given to the king? Without repairing as much damage as you could, damage that the church has received through your fault. The canon was offended by Don Bosco's denunciation. As his excuse, he offered all the arguments that the University of Turin spread without reproach, that the king possessed full supremacy concerning certain rights that the church claimed for itself. Don Bosco rebutted all those false propositions one by one and left the canon confused and stunned. The canon eventually went away, very disgusted with Don Bosco. But he soon became his friend and distinguished benefactor, and he remained as such until his death. This account shows how the errors that certain professors taught university students had poison that could obscure the most obvious truths, and this particular canon swallowed the liberal arguments of the day hook, line, and sinker. Thank God St. John Bosco converted him. And if you'd like to hear about how he converted an angry sword-wielding general who nearly attacked him as revenge for how he had rebuked the king, please subscribe and come back Friday to hear the final part of this series. In the meantime, you might check out this playlist I've put up about Don Bosco's miracles. Thank you all so much for watching. God bless you and Our Lady keep you. I fully realize that in ancient times and in the Middle Ages, there was a viable place for religious bodies whose sole function was to lead an ascetic and contemplative life. But those days are past, and I no longer see any use or advantage for modern society in preserving and perpetuating these now outdated religious organizations. Quote from Don Bosco's nemesis, Urbano Rattazzi, Italian politician and statesman. This is the final installment of our three-part series on how St. John Bosco opposed the Rattazzi Bill, which called for the suppression of monasteries in Italy. If you'd like to see the other parts, just click on the card that should appear on the top of the screen right about now. The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Subscribe for new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Don Bosco had written various other confidential letters to his sovereign, advising him to do the right thing and to steer his kingdom off the path to ruin. So many letters, in fact, that one day the king exclaimed, I no longer have a moment's peace. Don Bosco will not leave me alone. Then he instructed a courtier to report his words to Don Bosco, but his rebuke did not have the desired effect. While the matter was being debated in his chambers, King Victor Emmanuel, worried and impatient, wanted to know where that priest lived, the one who caused him so much distress. Early one Monday morning, dressed in everyday clothing, the king went to Valdoco on horseback with one of his aides, and they rode around the oratory. Seeing the cleric Caliero, he called him over and asked for news of Don Bosco. The cleric replied that Don Bosco was in the church, but was tired from hearing the previous day's confessions, preaching, and assisting the young people. Hearing this, the king departed, but he returned in a carriage in a few days. 
A few moments before he arrived, Don Bosco came down from his room and told Goffy the porter, I have a lot to do. Even if the king himself comes, please tell him that I'm not here. That said, he returned to his room. General Alexander Lukema, Count of Angronia, got out of the royal coach, entered the oratory, and asked for Don Bosco. Having received the answer from Goffi, he returned to the king who was waiting. However, the king had told the general vivid accounts of Don Bosco's boldness in writing him about certain threats. Being an impetuous man, the general believed it was his duty to ask Don Bosco to explain the supposed offenses he had committed against the sovereign. So the general returned on horseback several days later. He rode into the courtyard of the oratory, asked directions to Don Bosco's room, and went straight there. And upon arriving, Don Bosco stood up. But before we hear about what this enraged general said to Don Bosco, I'd like to invite you to enroll in our Saturday Mass intentions for the promoters of St. John Bosco by clicking on the link in the description below, or you can wait till the end of the video and click on the logo that's going to appear on the screen. It's a very beautiful Mass done in the traditional Byzantine rite for all of your intentions. Now you don't have to become a monthly donor to have a Mass prayed for you, but if you do, you could receive an amazing book written by St. John Bosco like this one, The Roadmap to Heaven. So please consider making a small sacrifice to keep these episodes free from filthy YouTube ads and thus helping us to better spread devotion to this great saint. And now on to the story. Are you Don Bosco? The general asked resentfully. I am, Don Bosco replied. Are you the one who dared to write certain letters to the king, trying to tell him how to govern the kingdom? The general raged on. Don Bosco protested, I have written, but never intended to impose my will on anyone. The general interrupted him and started railing against Don Bosco. He called the priest an imposter, a fanatic, a rebel, and an enemy of the king, whose honor he had vilified. He said that Don Bosco had outraged his majesty and stepped on sovereign authority. Don Bosco tried to interrupt the torrent of insults and endeavored to show him how his letters were not irreverent. The purpose of his writing had been to enlighten the king because Don Bosco loved his sovereign and was ready to sacrifice anything as a sign of his loyalty. But the general groaned even more, pretending not to understand or did not want to understand Don Bosco's reasons. He shouted, come now. I have not come to end the matter in mere words. You must give the satisfaction for the insults you dared to address to the king. And in what way? Don Bosco asked. First, in the name of his royal majesty, I demand that you no longer write to him about his court and the royal family. The king is furious. If you do not obey, regretful steps will be taken. Now sit down and write what I shall dictate to you. Don Bosco agreed. Provided it is not a retraction or a denial of the truth, I'm ready. Sitting down, he took up the pen. The general began to dictate a letter in which Don Bosco would offer a humble apology to the king and beg him to disregard the threats and prophecies he had written. Don Bosco put down his pen. It's not possible for me to write such a declaration. But you must, the general said. When I have written it, Will you be responsible before God for what might happen? Don Bosco asked. God has nothing to do with it, cried the general. I want you to write what I say. 
Don Bosco stood up, saying, I will not write this. At this reply, the furious general put his hand on the hilt of his sword. He seemed to want to challenge Don Bosco to a duel. With admirable calm, Don Bosco said that he had no weapons to defend himself and that his only defenses were reason and religion. He said, I could challenge you to a duel to see who can pray more. You would pray better and longer than me because you have more free time. The victory would surely be yours. But the general huffed and shook his sword. To end the scene, Don Bosco took a resolute stance, saying, You think perhaps you're intimidating me with these threats of yours? I tell you openly, I'm not afraid. I'm not at all afraid, because I know with whom I'm dealing. You are a gentleman and a valiant soldier. You will certainly not do violence to a poor, unarmed priest who only did what he thought best for the sake of his king's soul. I would have made your visit unnecessary if I had known that you wanted to see me. I would have gone to your palace, where we could have calmly found a way to satisfy the king, and at the same time, save my conscience. If I do that, I'm sure you will show me kindness and respect. You would take out a bottle of wine upon my arrival, and I would drink to your health. The general no longer knew what to say or do. His anger subsided. Half stunned, marveling at the change in his feelings, he said goodbye to Don Bosco and left. He mounted his horse and exited the gate. Then he stopped, re-entered the courtyard, descended and returned to Don Bosco's room. So you say you would come to my house, he asked. Don Bosco replied, most certainly. Would you still come, the general asked. Of course I would come, Don Bosco replied. Can I take you at your word? Absolutely, Don Bosco answered. Come tomorrow at 11 o'clock then, the general offered. I can't at that time, Don Bosco said, because I have business of great importance then. What about three o'clock in the afternoon? Don Bosco agreed. Tomorrow at three then, I will be there. The general looked intently at Don Bosco and then left. The next day, Don Bosco kept the appointment. He was received with every courtesy and calmly composed a letter he was comfortable sending to the king. Don Bosco signed it. In the letter, he said that he regretted any displeasure he had given to his sovereign because it was not his intention to offend him in the least. As for his predictions, the king should use his own judgment. He concluded by promising that he should write no more letters. The king had already signed the law and no one could deny what had occurred. However, Don Bosco later said he would never have signed that paper unless he sought to avoid a greater evil. Don Bosco's conversation with the general lasted for an hour. It was increasingly cordial and good-humored. The general wanted Don Bosco to stay and have lunch with him, but Don Bosco excused himself, saying he already had lunch. Then the general stopped Don Bosco as he was about to leave and told him, Before you leave, please taste the wine made from my vineyards. I want to seal our friendship. A servant appeared with a wine bottle and a box filled with pastries. Having filled the glasses, Don Bosco looked at the general and smiled. The general smiled too, and taking a pastry, he offered it to Don Bosco. Don Bosco joked, I hope it's not poisoned. The general replied, I'll eat half of your pastry if you like. And so he did. 
After a few minutes, they shook hands and parted. From then on, they were friends. The general wanted to have a young African boy baptized whom he had brought back from his travels. He presented him to Don Bosco so that he could convert him to Christianity. However, the government soon found yet another way to harass Don Bosco through tempting him into accepting some valuables that had been seized from the monasteries. One day, Count Cavour sent the oratory two huge cartloads of linen that had been confiscated from the Dominican monastery. Don Bosco was in severe financial difficulty at the time, but he nevertheless ordered that the carts were to remain untouched. Some people pointed out that many sacred vestments were falling into profane hands and that it would therefore be better if Don Bosco bought them. But he always replied, well, you're probably right, and this would also be a golden opportunity to provide my churches with many things that we need and perhaps will never be able to afford. However, if the oratory were closed down, I would not particularly like to see my things in other people's churches. It would hurt me deeply and I'm sure that the monks would feel the same way if they saw me in possession of their goods. He would also never accept monasteries or convents that were frequently offered to him by the government until Pope Pius IX himself ordered him to do so. The Pope said it was better that those properties be returned to the church through Don Bosco's hands than through anyone else's, which showed how much the Pope respected our dear saint. Thank you all so much for watching this three-part series on Don Bosco's letters to the king, and I myself enjoyed telling you these stories very much. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you.